Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about young adults and interpersonal conflict and resolution, and specifically about aggression, violence, and the role of adverse childhood experiences. Our guest is Elizabeth Mumsford. She is a principal research scientist and social epidemiologist at NORC at the University of Chicago and conducts research regarding contextual explanations for risky behaviors with a central focus on sexual harassment, sexual assault, and interpersonal aggression. She also conducts a national study of the safety and wellness of law enforcement officers and leads evaluation studies of programs to prevent interpersonal violence and to build resilience. In recent years, she has completed several resilience programs to train as a trainer and a practitioner of mind fitness, heart math, and somatic experiencing practices, all of which are trauma-informed approaches to build recovery and resilience. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the Think Peace podcast. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Colette. So let's get started. You are a research scientist and a social epidemiologist. What do you study and how did you get interested in working in this field? So my training was in a school of public health following years of international project work, not all of which was in the health sector. I started off working in Japan for a semi-governmental foundation on bilateral exchange programs, and that took me into work for USAID, the US um, Agency for International Development, uh, where I was supporting an international reproductive health policy project. And that got me into health, that got me into the field. But then when I went to grad school, I started studying um, a domestic topic, uh, tobacco use and other drug epidemiology. And that really set me on the path of social epidemiology. So you might, even though lots of people probably understand epidemiology better now because of the pandemic. It might be helpful if I defined that a little bit. I'm not sure if you, if your listeners. Uh, That that would be great. I would love that, especially the social aspect of it. Um, Because you're right. We always, you know, I think that it, the word really came um, into its own on the tip of people's tongue, but related to COVID. So how is it to the work that you do? Exactly. Yes. So it's typically thought of as the study of disease in populations. So a classic example in Epi 101 is a community luncheon um, after which several participants get ill. They go home and, you know, they're calling their buddies, are you sick? I'm sick. And then you apply epidemiological methods to try to understand what the cause of that illness was. You know, did somebody show up with the common cold or... Was it that the egg salad was left out too long before they served the luncheon and some bacteria accumulated and people got sick from the egg salad? So that's the typical definition. And of course, epidemiologists have been vital to um, supporting our policy choices um, during the COVID pandemic. And I'm very grateful that there are people who do continue to study um, disease in that way. But the topic of study is not always a disease or an illness. As a social epidemiologist, what I study is social and behavioral phenomena, collecting information and evaluating programs designed to make people's lives a little healthier. So I mentioned that I studied 
uh, tobacco and other drug ep epidemiology. I still do that somewhat, but I did start also studying um, interpersonal aggression and violence, including sexual harassment and sexual assault about 15 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect segue because I'm very curious about a study that you and your colleagues published on the role of adverse childhood on young adults. And I would love if you could talk about that study and also define what, what it means, you know, adverse childhood events. What does that mean? And, and what, did your, what did your study, why did you begin to study this topic and its connection to aggression? Sure. I think you're talking about our i study, our study of interpersonal conflict and resolution. We're, we're big on naming our studies with acronyms so they, and they're branded. But that was a study in which we recruited young adults, um, a nationally representative sample, um, to ask them about their recent experiences that involved aggression and violence. So I wanna go back a little bit to what does a social epidemiologist do? We don't just study the prevalence, like the rate of a disease, how many people went home sick from the lunch. We wanna find out what caused the problem. And so in social epidemiology, you're really looking for any modifiable levers, any buttons you can push. And that could be an individual characteristic, a contextual experience, something in the family, among the peer set. You know, if you're doing a lot of youth research, you might look at what the, the subject's friends are doing or something that's more systemic, you know, what's going on in the neighborhood or what are the policies in that community or more broadly. So you're looking for those modifiable factors that might help to improve somebody's health and well-being. And so when we uh, conducted a study of aggression and violence, we wanna say, well, we can understand the extent to which there's aggression and violence in this uh, young adult population, but can we study what might be related to that? And ACEs or adverse childhood experiences are typically measured for individuals before they turn 18, before they're adults. So that gives you a little bit of a time ordered relationship your experiences you had before you were 18, now you're a young adult, you have these patterns and experiences of uh, victimization or perpetration of aggression and violence. So we can, even in a cross-sectional study, you can say that the adverse childhood experiences came before the aggressive patterns. So talking about some of the adverse childhood um, experiences, what might that look like in, in a home or in a neighborhood or, or within the life? Of, uh, of a young adult? Well, it's or not a child, a child. Sure. I mean, there's what, there's how we measured it. You know, one thing about research is you're limited by your measures. You know, you, you can ask questions or you can collect data, but you, it's hard to collect all of the data to capture all of the experiences of anybody. There is a relatively short scale, often fielded federal studies um, that we drew on from the CDC that has 10 items for an adverse childhood experience scale. But I just wanna comment that I have colleagues in the field who have much more developed, richer survey instruments for adverse childhood experiences where you really get a lot more nuance out of what their experience is. So that is a limitation of our study that we used the 10 item scale. And the kinds of items that we asked about, we ended up analytically, the data allowed us to categorize them in our models. So we ended up with a few items that represented family instability. So those were things like um, your parents were separated or divorced, 
you lived with anyone who was depressed or mentally ill or suicidal, or perhaps somebody who was a problem drinker or somebody who used street drugs or even um, abused prescription medications or may have served some time in a correctional facility or jail. So in the data, we let the data speak to us as much as possible rather than making uh, a priori uh, choices about how we're gonna code data. But those, those were factors that went into a, a label of what we called family instability. And then a second category of responses, uh, we labeled emotional or physical abuse. So that might be that there were adults who maybe your parents are not in your home who perhaps uh, in, hit you, slapped you, hit you, kicked you, punched you, or beat each other up. You know, so that wasn't necessarily hurting you directly, but it was the experience of watching violence in your home. But we also found in the data that this went with uh, having parents or adults in the home who swore at you, insulted you, or put you down. Um, we do, when we ask that question following the CDC measure, we, we explicitly exclude spanking. There are individual families and different cultural perspectives on spanking in the US culture. And so the measure excludes spanking. And then the third category, sexual abuse, whether anyone who is at least five years older than the respondent or an adult. So, you know, could be an older sibling, could be a cousin, could be somebody down the street, an older teen, had ever touched the respondent sexually or tried to make the respondent touch that older person sexually or force them to have sex. So when you were engaged in the study and you were looking at those factors and gathering your data, what was the purpose of the study? Why was gathering of this data important and what, what were you looking to find or um, explore? I think I have to come clean and, and reveal some ignorance here. It's not that I wasn't interested in these factors when we first designed these studies, but I wasn't really focused on these factors. So this was a study of aggression and violence. And then in the midst of this, I was also beginning to study a lot about the neurophysiology of the human body in my own life and understanding a little bit more about emotional regulation and what that might mean for people's behavioral choices. And so I, have these measures of ACEs in my study, and we were able to publish this research, but I didn't really understand going into the design of the study that we would want more information about this. We'd want to go deeper on this particular topic. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's interesting for two, two reasons. One is that is something that exists in research. One goes in with the knowledge that one has, the state of a field at a certain time or prior studies. And then as you learn and you evolve, that could help inform future studies. That's the beauty of research and, and gathering more information and putting it in. So if you were to look at something like this, how is your knowledge of the neurophysiology of the human body and nervous system how would that inform you or, or how does it inform how you look at the study and the findings? Well, one of our findings were that both emotional, physical abuse and sexual abuse, those two categories that we coded 
um, as a child were consistent predictors of verbal aggression against a counterpart. And an interesting part about this study is that a lot of research for young adults are focused on intimate partner violence, you know, partnership, a domestic relationship, a dating relationship, um, as marriage, anything like that. And we conducted this study to look at aggression and violence um, related to a partner, but potentially also related to friends or strangers. So we asked the same aggression and violence questions for different counterparts. Did, were, did you behave this way towards a partner? Did you behave this way towards friends? Did you behave this way towards strangers? And we had some more detailed language how we explained what those categories might be. But we found that these adverse childhood experiences of abuse were consistent predictors of verbal aggression across all of those groups. So that extends the research because most of the research out there was only looking at intimate partnerships. And what that tells us is that when we think about prevention programming, about therapeutic programs, we need to understand that people who are acting out or having trouble controlling, regulating their emotions and their behavioral choices are probably going to be doing this in more than just their intimate partnership. And we can maybe figure out ways to address the problem when we understand that better. So that's, so you're looking at it across relationships outside, as you said, intimate partners, which then that moves into workplaces, relationships as broad as even society, engaging in society and with others and people we don't even know. Yes, we, I, when we were designing the study, I kept thinking about, you know, the clerk at the grocery store whom you don't really know, you've never bothered to learn their name, or maybe they don't, you don't see them frequently enough. It's nothing that you've dropped the ball on, but, you know, just random people that you run into and you maybe lose it more often. And it is true that our study showed that verbal aggression is much more frequent in the intimate partnership, but we can kind of understand that because there's a lot of opportunity. You're going to spend more time with an intimate partner there's more reason for conflict. There are more things that you're discussing and trying to negotiate and work out with an intimate partner than you're trying to work out with the clerk at the grocery store. And so there's opportunity and there's sources of conflict. So we found that the prevalence of verbal aggression was much higher in intimate partnerships. So around uh, up in the 70%, 72%. And then that aggression towards friends dropped down to 43% of the respondents said they had that. And then with strangers dropped again further to, to 34%. The level of physical aggression actually was pretty consistent. Almost 10% of the respondents said they were physically aggressive to any one of those counterparts, intimate partners, friends, or relative strangers. So then when you go back and you see that these adverse childhood experiences consistently contribute to that um, verbal aggression and physical violence, you realize that we need to be thinking beyond just intimate partnerships. And that said, the violence in intimate partnerships is unacceptable in our culture. And it is a very important thing to keep as a high priority. But potentially if we're aware that it can bleed over into other relationships, we might be able to discover and, and address violence in intimate partnerships better if we're understanding the scope of that person's behavior. Well, I'm curious, um, you looked at adverse childhood experiences. Were there other factors that you looked at that could have exacerbated aggression? 
or yes yeah sure no that um we we always want to control for other characteristics of the individuals in a study um because that that's what the beauty of the statistical models is because you you can't control for everything but you can control for the age of the respondent you know the gender of the respondent and um other characteristics so we looked at some personality characteristics um like agreeableness, um, self-control, and then some sociodemographics, whether they were living with their partner or not, if they were in a partnership and if they were living with their partner. And then we looked at these ACEs and then some behavioral uh, characteristics, like did they have a problem with alcohol um, or did they use marijuana or misuse prescription drugs and that sort of thing. So we do try to look at a lot of variables when we are examining an outcome like aggression and violence. And we did find some other associations beyond, uh, beyond the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. But what's interesting in the way we designed the study is first we looked at these things that we know are probably related to aggression and violence. You know, um, it's more likely that males are going to be um, uh, physically aggressive. That's just the nature of humanity. And that's what the data shows in study after study. And then you build your model, you add in more variables. And what we found is that these adverse childhood experiences were still significantly related to aggression and violence, even after you controlled for a whole range of other experiences, including recent stressors. So even if the big thing on your mind is that you just had a breakup and your car was repossessed and you know all things are going on that are difficult in your life, even controlling for all that, it could be that the abuse you experienced in childhood is still related to and still exhibiting itself. That trauma is still coming out of your system enough that it's contributing to your aggression and violence. Wow, so it really does have, what you're talking about the study show a pretty profound impact just based upon adverse childhood experiences alone as a, as a feature. Well, I think you know pretty well that if people have trauma in their systems and they don't have a way to get it out of their systems, it's gonna sit there and it's gonna come out uh, sometimes when you don't choose to have it come out. So without being able to address the trauma in your system, you can still go on and have a very uh, you know, successful life. You can address your needs, you can meet your family's needs, you can you know, pursue your career and your education and all of that. But if you have trauma in your system, it may come out again when you don't wish it to. Yeah, I wanna talk a little bit about um, in, your, uh, in the research uh, study and the paper that you wrote on its findings there was a discussion about aggression and its relationship to conflict and violence. And I think sometimes people might think, wow, you know, it's, there, there are these adverse childhood experiences, it feeds in, therefore there's you know, more propensity towards aggression. Yet at the same time, you talk a little bit about the rational choice theories of aggression and that it's not just like light switches go on because you've had adverse child experiences, therefore there's going to be aggression. Can you talk about the nuances around that a little bit and, and how that might play out in day-to-day um, -day relationships? I can do my best, but I do want to give credit to the folks who are really expert in um, neurophysiology and psychology. 
that is one thing about being trained as an epidemiologist. I study these uh, other <laughs> studies and try to really understand what's going on, but I come at it sometimes, I like to say, with a fifth grade perspective. I can sort of understand how the body is built now and how the brain and the heart and the lungs are connected and the um, different neural pathways can, making all those connections, but it's something that I've learned late in life and not something that I study day to day. But to try to answer your question, I think what we have to understand is that it's not a top-down system. Our functioning in the world is not always governed entirely by our brain, that there is a lot of connection between the brain and the other parts of the body through the nervous system. All that neural material in the brain is nervous nerves running out throughout the body. And when we get information through that nervous system at any place in our body, it may come back to the brain and we process it and, and see what we're gonna do next. But it's also connected to a lot of neural material in our guts and in our hearts. And I'm sure you've had some experts or you will have some experts on your show who will talk more with more erudition than I can talk about those things. But one of the programs that I studied about what these connections are taught me, which I was quite surprised to learn that in terms of the, the connection, the information that's going between the heart and the brain, instead of the brain really running the show, it turns out that about 10% of the information on that pathway is going from the brain to the heart, whereas about 90% is going from the heart to the brain. So there's a lot of important activity in the rest of our physiology that relates to how we make decisions. It's not always a rational opportunity to take a look at a conflict and say, I know what I'm gonna do here. And I think that when we stop and think about it, we're always familiar with that. Oh yeah, I lost my head. I forgot what I was doing and I lost it. Yeah, because other things are happening in our body. It's not necessarily a prefrontal cortex decision about how to handle a conflict. And when you were talking about um, earlier on about how the findings of this study could help inform programming or further research, what might that look like? And what would be your hope of what could happen or not happen based upon the findings of your study? Well, again, I have to give my hats off to the people who actually take epidemiological research and turn it into really effective programs or therapeutic approaches to help people. Um, and you know, the baby steps of what we do is try to generate studies and put it out there and build the body of research that will inform that next step. So one, you know, contribution I think of this current study is that uh, while there was a lot of studies of childhood adversity on a whole range of, of different adult outcomes, there weren't so many that looked at um, broad adult issues with aggression and violence. There's a few that looked at intimate partner violence, but this just took it a little bit further to look at, uh, you know, as I said, violence with other people. We also have uh, both victimization and perpetration. The field of violence has really, or interpersonal violence has really moved forward. We're in a good trajectory here because more and more studies study perpetration of violence as opposed to just victimization. It used to be, we just studied the real problem. The real problem is that people are being hurt. That's victimization. You can't change victimization by by asking victims to behave differently. There's certain things they might do to protect themselves, but really what you wanna do is change a perpetrator's experience and their behavior. 
So um, this study was entirely a study of perpetration and we think that's constructive for the field. So, you know, I do hope also that this study may inspire other researchers to follow up with interventions for young adults that really target young adults' neurophysiology. There's a lot of talk out there about what these programs are that might, or therapeutic approaches that might help um, individuals gain more control over their neurophysiology and their behavior and emotional regulation. Um, and I think this study shows that in a nationally representative population, general population, this is something that's an issue and that uh, there are opportunities here to improve programming and therapeutic approaches. Yeah, and I can imagine something you're, you touched upon early on, the aspect of prevention, but um, what might be done at the front end to address um, early on some of the adverse uh, experiences um, from happening to begin with. Well, right. And people have been struggling, you know, people of good intentions have been struggling for, for millennia to make everybody's lives a little bit better. I think, you know, it's important to know that some of this neurophysiological regulation can be offered when children are very young and that you can start to try to support their neurophysiological health through all sorts of approaches that may set them on a better course, build the resilience in their systems so that when they, if they continue to face adversity in their childhood, they may be more resilient to it. You know, there were earlier used to be a lot of research about the cycle of violence. If you were coming from a home of violence, you were gonna end up in a home of violence. But the reality is that many, many people who come from homes of violence avoid violence and do not end up in those situations. So what is it about their makeup that they were able to be resilient and come out of that and, and do better. So it's really constructive to think about what kind of interventions and um, supports can be put in place early on. It's a little bit of a chicken of an egg because I always want to say, yes, you want to get to those children really early, but I'm constantly thinking about how you also want to get to those young adults when, before they get pregnant, before they decide to have that child, what can they do to regulate their nervous system? Or during the pregnancy, during those really straining, stressful early years with small children, how can those parents be as regulated as possible to create the environment that trains that child's system to be more regulated as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, an intervention that could help prevent the cycle from mm -hmm. um, continuing on. And mm -hmm. you mentioned the research around what is it about certain systems or individuals that their, their resiliency um, is such that they did not continue the patterns? So what, what, what does that look like and what were the factors that led to, to that outcome? Yeah, I, and I think it's a myriad of factors. And we have to acknowledge that we're, if you're just looking at an individual in a research study, or you might be looking at family systems and what the, uh, you might get data from the parents, what they're going through, have intergenerational studies like that, but you really also need to look at the community, what they're facing in the community, um, what kind of systemic challenges they're facing. Those sorts of things also play a role in uh, families and individuals' resilience. And, and that actually, um, this isn't my research, but uh, um, you know, the, have you heard of the weathering hypothesis? No that our systems uh, essentially, at like a mountain, like a, any kind of natural landform, we get worn down by the weather. 
So individuals who are really facing many challenges have to, they have to get up and go every day like all of us, but it's a little bit harder. Their bodies might get a little bit more weathered. And that's when you look at systemic racism in our culture or other factors that can really wear people out. And then you may see a stronger profile, a higher profile of other illnesses, um, weakened immune systems and things like that. And, and the weathering hypothesis and I could give you the name later of the author who coined that. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And I think I can imagine um, having an understanding of that helps when one is engaging with others and trying to understand that it's not always willful that somebody may or may not be able to have certain abilities to bounce back or not engage in, you know, as you mentioned, aggression, not that that's, we want that in society, but to try to better understand what is driving that and, and how can that perhaps be addressed, like you said, with young adults to try to provide some level of intervention that could help prevent that from continuing on. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly it's like our parents told us, put yourself in the other person's shoes, yeah. see what they're experiencing. We were just discussing at dinner, <laughs> about what could be a solution. And the long held belief of mine is that if we created, maybe not mandated, but created a strongly supported and encouraged system whereby everybody had to go do home, home exchanges, you know, it might be in other countries or it might be in another part of our own country. If you're from the Northeast, maybe you need to go live in Texas for a little bit and you move into a home and you understand what they're going through, how that might help our society if we really put ourselves in other people's shoes with that kind of experience when we were young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it brought it brought into your aperture. Yes, and and understanding hopefully, um, and that leads me to the question of when you talked about the research moving outside the interpersonal, you know, the close relationships, but out into society writ large, and we're all kind of out there, you know, bumping into each other sometimes literally, and and. I'm curious for the field of conflict resolution and peace building based upon what you, you mentioned. If you were to, let me, let me ask two questions related to that. One is what might you be able to say how your findings connect or implications for the field of conflict resolution and peace building? And where would you like to see some of the studies go um, on, on how we might expand understandings to inform better conflict resolution and peace building processes? I think that to me, these years, it always comes down to understanding our own neurophysiology and helping other people to understand their neurophysiology. Because when we're stuck in that box of thinking either that we have control of a situation from our brain or that we can't control a situation from our brain and therefore we're in a self-blaming situation. Like I just can't seem to handle this right. Every time I end up in this position, I do it wrong and that makes me angry and this is the way I act out about it. All of that, I think if we truly could educate our peers, you know, everybody around the world more about our own neurophysiology that our bodies really matter that you cannot solve all your problems from your brain. It just isn't going to work. I think that's where uh, my passion and drive is as I continue this field of research. Yeah, that it actually has, it can inform how we 
interact with ourselves and with others and hopefully then make different um, choices that are not ruled by past things that have happened or reactions, but more ability mm -hmm. to think through them. Mm -hmm. But, and I'm curious too about um, one of the research implications in, in the study talked about the use of conciliatory or avoidance tactics when um, interacting with partners. And so I'm trying to think about how in conflict management, oftentimes we think avoiding conflict um, is a way to avoid conflict. Conflict mm. if we're not if we're mm. not trying to talk about it, um, but it's at the same time that then conflict can fester and um, you know issues between groups, intergroup conflict mm -hmm. can arise. So I'm just wondering if there's anything from your research that you know might be extrapolated into the peace building field as it relates to how how you know adverse childhood experiences or or things like that might help or hinder, aside from aggression, um, peace building efforts. I mean, aggression we know is a problem, ma'am, problem. <laughs> so for violent, right. violent conflict, we get that. So definitely I would, you know, I think it's clear from your study that it's important to look at this factor because aggression can lead to, to, to violence that can lead to violent conflict and cycles of violence, which is mm -hmm. issue. But what about conflict resolution and bringing people together? I mean, again, I'd have to go back to your physiology. And if we look at, um, you know, how creatures of any body size, any, any species work, we're either fighting or we're running away or we're freezing. That's how we survive. Um, the most advanced system we have for survival and, you know, credit to our colleague, Elizabeth Stanley for teaching me all this, but is the social emotional system. You know, if we look at polyvagal theory and how we can bring social emotional responses in a constructive way to handle a conflict. But conflict avoidance is running away. And while we can run away back to, you know, our own den to avoid a conflict, the conflict didn't cease to exist just because we ran away. So leaning into a conflict without ending up in an aggressive or violent situation means staying grounded in our own bodies, understanding our own positions and saying what we need. Here's in this situation, we have this conflict and what I'm feeling I need is blank. And then the counterpart has an opportunity to say, okay, that's what you need. I mean, honestly, marriage counseling is a great skill that should be offered to all human beings so that we learn how to talk to each other with respect and how to express our own needs in a way that doesn't feed the conflict yeah no absolutely and then spiral out of control and more damage done from from that conflict mm -hmm. so last question is um if you had a magic wand and you could um direct research in areas that you think based upon this study and your other work where, where would you love to see more research to, to bring more evidence-based um, practices or understanding that could help inform practices or you know, conflict resolution or peace building work from your field? Uh, within my field, I think I, and we do spend a lot of money, you know, there's a lot of private dollars and federal dollars and state dollars that go into um, prevention of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and domestic violence. So I'm not saying that we're not trying, 
but I think we should be trying with more of an eye that what we're doing isn't working. So try it, throw it out, try something new, tweak it, try again. Um, the funding cycles, you know, are longer, slower. It takes time to figure out, you know, it takes time to conduct good research and see if you have a good outcome. But I'd like to start a lot younger and start um, working on these factors with more flexibility to toss this intervention. It's not doing any good and really address violence from a different angle, a sexual violence or sexual harassment or um, dating violence or anything like that. And I really think that the way to do that is to teach people an understanding of their neurophysiology. Oh, I'm feeling this way in my body. What do I need to do about that? Instead, we say, don't do that. You know, that's not appropriate. And everybody knows you shouldn't smoke cigarettes and you shouldn't sexually harass and you shouldn't sexually assault. We, kids know that, you know, adults know that. And yet we know from our public discourse and social media that it happens all the time. So how can we get back to the roots of what's their feeling in their bodies? And then how are they choosing to act based on those feelings? Yeah. And when you said that, it made me think of, you're looking at it from a public health, from a science standpoint, rather than a, I don't know what the word moral or what, you know, behavior type of thing that we, we agree is bad behavior, but you're looking at it as, okay, this is, this is the way human beings respond. So let's respond in a way that will tap into how they respond because by not doing it is we're not going to get to the root of it. You talked about working with perpetrators. Oftentimes yes. I want to work with perpetrators because it's like, that's bad, bad people, you know? Yeah. I appreciate your saying that. And I think that may be the difference of being in my fifties instead of being 17. You know, I, I really feel the pain of other people and pain gets expressed in a lot of ways. And sometimes it gets expressed in ways that really hurt other people. And of course, you want to take care of the victims first and foremost, to give your energy to them, to protect them, to get them to a safe place, to heal their trauma. But to change the world, you've got to work with those perpetrators and understand their own pain and figure out what you can do to support them so they can stop behaving that way. Thank you very much for, for all the time that um, you took to talk with me and work through the research studies and, and to help understand um, the meaning and the, the importance of it. And so the last thing is, is there anything else that you would like to share um, before we close? Oh, what I think it's really important is that your listeners know that you're a tremendous gardener. And <laughs> I don't know if you're ever gonna share that on this Think Peace podcast. I don't think I, I, don't think I have. I think people should know that. And a canner that you produce a lot of produce from your garden and then you um, preserve it for the winter season. So really very holistically talented woman. Well, and I guess for full disclosure, I do want to say that I had no idea. I've known you for, oh my goodness, since our kids were three in preschool and we knew each other as moms, you know, canning hours of tomatoes and, and um, applesauce. And so all these years, I didn't even fully grasp what you quote did. I knew who you were, you were Elizabeth, but what you did and your background until I needed to pull your bio for this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really, really appreciate, you know, all the different dimensions and, and you're an amazing um, gardener too. And you taught me how to compost about 15 years ago. So thank you. <laughs>
That's right. Saving the world one compost pile at a time. <laughs> exactly. So thank you for that. I'm still doing it. Good. Good. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much. And thank you for um, joining uh, me for the Think Peace podcast. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.